Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. We're giving cities more flexibility to adopt plans that work for them locally. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Not Nimes. Uh, yeah, no, we're keeping this one. <laughs> That's Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. Yes, uh, here. How you doing, Liam? I'm, I'm in Sacramento, Sacramento. Yeah, yeah, it's nice to have you back. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It is Thursday, January 9th. And today on the podcast, we will be talking about what else? Senate Bill 50. The remix. The third iteration, we will be talking about the new amendments that were introduced into Senate Bill 50. This, um, I'm sure most of our listeners know, is the bill from Senator Scott Wiener, Democrat from San Francisco, that tries to force cities to allow more dense building around transit. And these amendments were serious amendments. Major changes to the bill, uh, and we'll certainly get into them in more depth, but allows for cities to have much more control over where uh, new apartments would go in their communities. And we have the perfect guest to discuss SB 50. Who is it? It's Senator Scott Wiener. Before we get into um, SB 50 and our avocado of the fortnight, we want to introduce somebody who I'm very excited to have on board. Jacob, why don't you tell us who you are, why I'm introducing you, and if you care at all about this podcast. Hello, yes. So my name's Jacob Lazaro. I'm currently joining CalMatters for the next few months as a transportation housing audio um, reporter, person, guru, if you will. Um, the guru's And good. so yeah. I'm here assisting with the recording, editing of this SB50, again, again, episode of Give Me Shelter. And do I care about the podcast? I think that I care very much. So Jacob will help us achieve one of the resolutions I have for the podcast, which is to improve the audio quality. Yes. And also will serve, I've always wanted to have a producer that we could refer to during the podcast. This mm-hmm. is a podcast staple, in my opinion. Opinion. Jacob, very quickly, you are from originally from the East Coast, but you are currently living in Chicago. That's right. So I'm a senior at uh, Northwestern University up in Chicago. Grew up mostly in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, but now I'm here in scenic Sacramento for the next few months. Okay. Uh, Happy New Year, Liam. Happy New Year. So again, as I mentioned, we're recording this Thursday, January 9th. Uh, we should say that Governor Newsom will drop his budget tomorrow. Right. Friday, January 10th, as he is uh, legally required to do. Any discussion of SB 50, I'm sure he'll be asked about it, either by me or by you or mm-hmm. maybe someone else. Right. Um, obviously, won't be reflected in this recording of the podcast. Yeah. And uh, also any discussion of what else might be in the budget when it comes to housing issues. He has already announced, however, uh, about $1.4 billion in, right. in new funding for uh, homelessness around the state. And so that's going to be a, a major uh, headline that's already been written uh, about the governor's budget proposal. Now to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is the avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. Once again, we will be heading towards one of your backyards, San Diego. A real grove of avocados, San Diego is. We should just start with the headline of this story that really sums everything up uh, (laughs) from the San Diego Union Tribune newspaper. From stripper poles to tent poles, adult club providing shelter to homeless. So uh, there is a headline. Yeah, a strip club in San Diego 
with, uh, I guess, a, a large homeless population surrounding it. They ended up handing out tents. Not just any tent, though. Tents with their logos to uh, the folks who were living around their uh, business and what the company described as a goodwill gesture to the community. I'm going to read a little bit from this story in the San Diego Union-Tribune by Gary Rath. This is a quote from Ryan Carlson, the director of Deja Vu Showgirls. I wish every business would try to do their part, no matter how small or big. We all have responsibilities to do something for the community of which we're a part. A woman named Katie wrote the San Diego Union-Tribune to say she was taken aback when her two middle school-aged children asked her what Deja Vu was after seeing the name on some tents around her home in the Midway District. Katie, who did not provide her last name, asked why a depraved company would use poor people to advertise themselves. That was a brief one. That concludes the avocado of the fortnight for this fortnight. Let's get to the main course, that Senate Bill 50, the local control remix. (laughs) For first-time listeners and for Jacob's benefit, uh, why don't you take us back to the history of this bill. I feel like it's been part of our lives for a long time. Yes, uh, but it feels th- longer. Yes. So there was a bill introduced, uh, Senate Bill 827, it was called back then by Senator Weiner, which aimed directly to increase density around transit stops, allowing for apartment complexes three to five stories, or I think at one point it might have been even larger than that. It was larger than larger that, than that. Yeah. significantly. R- significantly yeah. larger than that. And so this was a, a plan, and it landed really explosively. A lot of heat and light surrounding this bill. It got a lot of attention among local governments governments who were worried about the the bill taking away uh, their authority and also about character of neighborhoods and single-family neighborhoods, uh, things of that nature, because it would increase density in single-family neighborhoods. That was the deal if they were around transit. Secondarily, there was a lot of concern, and these, these two strains of opposition have held the entire way. So concerns from local governments, suburban communities, things of that nature on the one hand. On the other hand, concerns from uh, anti-gentrification advocates who are worried mm-hmm. about uh, increased development in their, in their communities, potentially exactly exacerbating some of the pressures for displacement that are already existing in California. And so these groups um, uh, sort of rose up in opposition surrounding uh, Senate Bill 827, and there was a climactic hearing in spring of uh, 2018 where the bill died uh, sort of uh, rather unceremoniously uh, without um, in its first committee hearing, so very early on in the process. Yes. Uh, and just to take a step back, the, the point of this bill I don't think it's arguable California is in a housing shortage. Yes. We do not have enough housing. Right now, in many portions of the state, it is illegal to build denser housing, really apartment buildings, yes. anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. This bill would try to rewrite those rules. It's a twin purpose, both to address the housing concerns that the state has and also the climate concerns that the state has as well. If you get people living, more people living near transit, they drive less or don't drive at all, and that helps with greenhouse gas emissions. So SB 820. 27 dies. Yes. Fast forward to the next year, we have Senate Bill 50, the new version of SB 827, mm-hmm. which tries to appeal to many of the opponents that you just um, outlined, help sink the bill the previous year. That's right. So, and we get into this some in the interview with the senator, but there were some changes made predominantly to try to address concerns raised by uh, advocates within the equity community. So, provisions put into place that would prevent or aim to prevent displacement of existing existing residents um, by banning uh, many demolitions um, of existing property. Also, there was an expansion of the bill that would allow for uh, apartment growth, not just near transit, but also in uh, communities near 
good jobs and good schools. And the argument there is these are wealthy communities that have long been um, off limits for higher density development. And if you push some growth into there, uh, not only would that uh, address some housing concerns uh, and allow for more housing in those communities, but also as a climate benefit by having people living closer to where they work, even if they don't uh, aren't necessarily right next to transit. That helps satisfy many of the complaints from the anti-gentrification groups, yeah. right? What they would say, which is 100% accurate, is that public transit has historically been located in lower income communities, especially lower income communities of color, because richer, typically wider places don't want the uh, rail station right. or the subway right, right next to them. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, that really pissed off the Palo Altos of the world, I would yes. say, got mm-hmm. very, very upset by that. One more key series of amendments that was introduced into SB 50 last year, in order to get the bill through a key committee, smaller counties, I'm making air quotes here, counties that are under 600,000, sign kind of an arbitrary distinction, I would argue, yeah. get much softer density requirements. Four to five story buildings uh, around public transit doesn't really apply in the same way yeah. to those areas, most notably Marin County. Um, Sonoma as well. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, famously anti-development. Then there was one more key provision, the fourplex provision. Right now in the state, but somewhere between 50% to 75% of the developable land is only for single family homes or single family homes plus a casita or backyard unit. And this uh, goes much further than that in saying that on vacant parcels of land that are now zoned single family, you could build a fourplex, so four houses instead of one. Uh, and then places where there is an existing single family house, uh, you could convert that into a duplex, triplex, or fourplex. So again, kind of really striking a blow at this idea that you would only have one house on a parcel of land. And I think one other key thing that we should mention is that, uh, yes, this bill does apply to market rate development, so development that is you know, uh, priced at whatever the market will bear. However, there is a set-aside for low-income housing in the bill, depending on the size. Right now, the bill says depending on the size of the project, you have to set aside either money or uh, a portion of that project for uh, low-income homes. The coalition that Senator Weiner brought to support this bill um, was much broader than it was than SB 827. That's correct. And there was growing momentum behind it. I personally thought that it would at least get through the Senate, the yes. state Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, then what happened? It did not. It did not. Much yes. to, I think, the surprise of a lot of people, including yeah. Senator Weiner, the yeah. bill was buried um, in the Appropriations Committee by Senator Anthony Portentino, Democrat from uh, the Pasadena area, mm-hmm. who argued that this was stripping way too much local control over housing decisions. Right. That's where we stood at the beginning of this year. Yes. The bill had been turned into a two-year bill. The provisions that we just outlined from last year were still intact. Mm-hmm. And then we get word there's going to be a bunch of new amendments to try to get this through. Yeah. And it's important that we're this is happening now because, as you mentioned, this bill is now being on a two-year track. That means under the rules of the legislature, it has to advance out of its first house, so advance out of the state Senate by the end of this month, January, January 31st. So there's a tight deadline to get this through the state Senate. Yes. So the major change is one that now gives local governments, cities and counties much more control over uh, increasing density in their communities than what was in the bill previously. So under the bill previously, if you're near transit or if you're in a, a what was termed in the bill a job-rich area, this was the amount of density you would have to allow on that property. So four to five stories or smaller in some other areas, but there is very prescriptive. These new rules now say 
in across the state, cities and counties would have two years to develop an alternative plan that would increase density at the same level that would be required under SB 50. And to prevent cities from pushing the possible new development into the nether regions of their locality, yes. into sprawl, yeah. a key provision of these amendments is you can't uh, increase vehicle miles traveled. This shouldn't add to traffic and it shouldn't add to greenhouse gases. Right. Yeah. I also mentioned there was a, another amendment that would prioritize lower income residents from the immediate neighborhood to get first dibs into the affordable housing generated by SB 50. Right. If a city does not choose to take advantage of this local option that, that is offered now offered in the bill over the next two years, they would then, the provisions of SB 50 would apply, right? So it's kind of a, a, a limited opt out, if you will. Secondarily, um, there has been something that was first put into the bill last year in neighborhoods around the state that are at risk of displacement. There was a five-year delayed implementation period where those communities could develop their own alternative plans. This continues in this version of the bill. I think a key argument that these amendments certainly undercut under the previous version of the bill, local governments did not have control over where housing should go in their community, mm-hmm. and now they do. Local governments can arguably know more about their communities than the state does, yep. know where housing might be more desirable and better for the city to live in, right. um, and this allows them to develop their own plan. The real justification for these amendments is a political justification. Right. So this becomes much more easier for localities to swallow because at least they can say – we are developing our own plan, and it's not the state just thumping us. Right, and there's this—you heard this over the past two years. The state is not one-size-fits-all, exactly. and this says, well, you, okay, you're not. Now let's get to why this might not work. So uh, where do you want to start? Let's start policy-wise. Yeah. I mean, so the—and we're try, try not to delve too deeply into this, but it is important. I mean, the state does have an existing process, one that was beefed up recently, that requires cities and counties to zone for new housing in their in their communities. Yes. And, in fact, beefed up recently to the point now in Southern California, in particular, the Los Angeles area, the five-county region, six-county region around and, and around L.A., uh, you know, a significant increase down the line are coming very, very soon for a lot of communities, particularly including communities that have been exclusionary for a long time to zone for a lot more housing. It's unclear to me still exactly how this process would interact or potentially be duplicative or all that sort of stuff around the process that local governments are already having to do right now. Exactly. And that process has been historically flawed. So the state already has a system where local governments are obligated to zone for a certain amount of housing. They submit those plans to the state housing department and the state to housing department either signs off or rejects them. And for the vast majority of the history of that process, yeah, 50 it, years, yeah. it has not worked. So now, in theory, the city would be submitting multiple plans yeah. to the state at around the same time that would do essentially the same thing. And so it just it's it's complicated. Not to mention the two year delay, right? That's there's right. there's as uh, we get into with the interview with Senator Weiner, there's plenty of people who will argue the urgency of this housing crisis warrants immediate action. And not only that, because just because you zone a parcel of land for a fourplex does not mean a fourplex gets there tomorrow. If you're pushing fourplexes down the road in the two years, then it could be actual housing could be many more years down the road. Exactly. I I also just want to point out the fourplex provision, which hasn't changed, but 
it is arguable how effective that's going to be because it only allows single-family homes to be converted into that's right. duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes. Um, it doesn't allow them to be demolished and replaced. Yes. In Oregon, Oregon got a, a good amount of national attention for a, a law similar in spirit to Senate Bill 50. They allow um, demolition and reconstruction for yes. duplexes. Mm -hmm. Why politically would this not uh, work? Well, we've already seen not a lot of really high-profile people saying that they like this, you know? Well, I don't know if that's... I mean, overall, I yeah. think the bill has gotten high-profile mayors to... Uh, but that was the case last year as well. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, but... I don't think yeah. these amendments specifically have generated new high-profile commitments. And that's the point I was making. Yeah. Um, you know, you had... Uh, I talked to Senator Portentino, um, not a fan, right? Still thinks this is too onerous, uh, thinks it doesn't focus enough on, on low-income housing. That's his point. And then you had, you know, a really... I don't even know what the word... Interesting, I'll use that again. Event in Oakland this week where the senator... Uh, formally unveiled these changes to the bill where he was uh, shouted down by a number of equity groups that were opposed to, still opposed to this measure. There was a press conference, a, a press event outdoors on the steps of Oakland City Hall. It was Senator Scott Wiener, uh, Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff, um, a couple other political figures mm -hmm. there. And they were shouted down by an assortment of protesters, yeah. um, but probably most notably a group called Moms for Housing, um, which has generated a great deal of publicity and sympathy, I would yeah, say, yeah. over the past few months. So yeah. this is a group of uh, mothers who had been experiencing homelessness who took over a vacant home in Oakland mm -hmm. that was owned by a corporate entity that yeah. had not been occupied for a while. Yeah. Their point was, there's all these vacancies here. Yeah. There's no way I can afford to live in Oakland. Right. I'm taking this. Right. And they're fighting eviction now. So there's exactly. the processes going through the courts and all those sorts of stuff. So, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it is obviously not a good look for the supporters of SB 50 to have mothers who had experienced homelessness in Oakland who are big anti-gentrification activists shouting you down at a uh, press event. Right. And their argument is that, um, you know, they don't think that the bill does anything for them. Right. Um, and so and in, in some ways could exacerbate the gentrification and displacement concerns that are in their community. Exactly. And so, again, given that we're kind of 18 months on, I mean, look, like on, I think on, on either side of anything, you're not going to get 100 percent support of any groups. Right. But I do think it highlights a vulnerability that exists and is real um, and has been existing in, and is, has been real for this entire 18 months period that we've been discussing, which is that there's a strong argument um, among you know groups on the left that the senator's bill is actively harmful. There's the actively harmful component, but then yeah. there's the also, what does this do for me component? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that argument is um, very legitimate. Essentially, many of the problems that haunted the bill last year politically- Are the same. Are the same. I think it gives uh, Senator Weiner and his supporters a, a nice rhetorical- um, instrument to say yeah. you wanted local control. Here it is. Here's local control. Right. I don't think it's going to convince a lot of new people to to come on board, and yeah. we haven't seen evidence of that just yet. I will say the Senate leader, Senator Tony Atkins, crucially, um, crucially, she's been making signals ever since the failure of SB 50 last year that she wanted to do things that would work towards getting a successful passage of the bill or something like it. This year, she told me quickly when I spoke with her this week that she did expect there to be a vote uh, on the Senate floor uh, on this bill this month. 
month, which is does mean that would have to advance out of Senator Portantino's committee, number one. Number two, she did compare in a statement the fate of Senate Bill 50 potentially to the fate of a major, major bill last year that changed the police use of force rules mm-hmm. in, in the state, a bill that similarly was held among great dissension in the, in the legislature uh, because it's such a high-profile issue. The following year, there was a big conversation led uh, by the Senate to advance that bill, and that in, indeed ended up uh, happening. I know we're always reluctant to offer predictions, um, but I, I think it would be useful to, to get kind of gut instincts on where the bill heads from here. Yeah. Even with Senator Portantino's opposition, there are mechanisms by which the bill can maneuver its way sure. around appropriation. Senator Weiner and others, especially with the at least tacit support of Senator Atkins, mm-hmm. um, are fairly confident that they could get the votes in the Senate. Yeah. My expectation would be that this would clear the Senate. I would be surprised if it didn't. Um, however, I have certainly been wrong before. I think I'm in the same place. Um, and I think, you know, but it is interesting, you know, a lot of times with these bills, even if people are reluctant to vote for it in, in a particular house, they'll advance it to keep conversations going. Exactly. Which is kind of what I thought would happen last year. But because this is so thorny, I don't know how if you can, I mean, I, I guess you might get away with that argument. Um, and people will make that argument on the Senate floor, I would, I would imagine. But, you know, there is still a lot of time here. You know, mm-hmm. if it does advance out of the Senate, you have roughly four months where it's kind of sitting in the assembly where you can make a lot of changes and have a lot of negotiation. It's just we have this very tight deadline in the Senate right now. So Senator Weiner, on the one hand, he's trying to ensure that cities do allow more housing to be built. On the other hand, he has to make all of these amendments to satisfy um, the local control and gentrification concerns. Do you think he has effectively done that? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm still I'm still confused and will be, I think, for some time about the interaction with the existing state law. We see this a lot with a lot of the kind of these thorny issues. I think a good analogy is with the California Environmental Quality Act, which is a you know legislation that requires developments to make take into account their environmental impacts before you are allowed to build, and it's often charged with being a huge barrier to to building. And the legislature time and again takes makes efforts to try to streamline this or eliminate this or whatever. And as it works through the process, because there's so many interest groups that are involved, you end up getting a bill that really only a handful of projects can actually use. But I think the longer this goes and the longer this kind of flails around, um, the more chance there are that whatever impact the senator would like it to have, the less it would. And to that point, ultimately, this will be judged on whether units actually get built. That's right. I spoke with Dan Dunmire, who's the head of the developers lobby here, very influential in the Capitol. And he said he had just been briefed on the amendments. And he said, I don't know. I literally don't know if this is actually going to help production. The state housing department, housing and community development has been tasked with a lot of new responsibilities over the past two years, I would say. Three years. Yeah. 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 Three years. Mm -hmm. This is would be yet another thing HCD has to do. You have to think about the actual manpower involved in that. Let's talk about Governor Newsom real quick. Yeah. Um, he has yet to explicitly endorse SB 50. We got into this a little bit earlier, but when do you expect him to weigh in, if at all? I don't know. I mean, I think let's make this bigger than SB 50. And I think you often hear complaints from people in his orbit that it's not just about SB 50. There are many other things. And, and I think, OK, f- yes, f- fair enough. 
But, you know, you made a gigantic promise to increase uh, housing density in this state or home production in this state. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, an important distinction there. Sure, sure, sure. But he also has you know, embraced the state's environmental goals, too. So it's not like he's like, let's mm-hmm. just build everything in, in, uh, in you know, sprawl, right? If he's not going to do something directly with SB50, he, he, he is, is on the hook, I think, to put forward a plan that would dramatically increase or aim to dramatically increase building production in the state. And we have not seen that yet. And so I think he does feel the urgency of that. Also, he has, you know, told me, and others that he's very much willing to continue to try to go after local government control over housing approval and, and zoning. And so I would not be shocked to see uh, ideas along those lines. And so, you know, I think if not SB 50, then I think the onus remains on him to try to put forward an alternative that would A, meet the very uh, robust things that he's promised and B, try to meet the extent of the housing problem that the state has. I think it's almost inarguable politically that he needs some type of production bill yeah that last year um, when they passed the statewide anti-rent gouging cap as well as a host of other housing legislation the um, chorus was okay we're doing this now we know we need production we know we need production next year we're going to have production right so he i i think he has to come up with something and it'll be interesting what he says tomorrow at the budget yeah and i think his options are relatively limited in terms of what that bill would be if it's not sb50 right right? Right. if he goes after the california environmental quality act in some way i think politically that's arguably even a a more difficult i think it's harder yeah especially considering some of the friction he has had with the state building trades. Yeah, the um, construction workers union, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, there's stuff you could do around impact fees. Um, the fees that local governments charge developers for, say, park set aside or whatever when they're when they're building, a lot of the argument is that those fees are too high. Yeah, none of, none of these options are easy. No. Anything else on SB50? No, I think we should get to our interview. Let's talk with Senator Wiener. We are here with Senator Scott Weiner, the author of Senate Bill 50, making another appearance on our podcast. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start? Um, why don't you tell us why uh, you made the changes you did to SB 50 and particularly we're interested in discussing the, the local alternative, local flexibility option? Uh Sure. Well, we're now entering our our third year on this legislation because the first year was Senate Bill 827 and then it became Senate Bill 50. So um, it's been a, you know, which is not shocking for a hard bill. Sometimes hard bills take a few years. Uh, And over that time, we have done enormous outreach to um, advocacy organizations around the state, to local governments around the state, city council members, mayors, planning departments. Uh, And we've been continually getting feedback on the bill. And so we've made amendments over the last few years in response to that feedback. And one uh, piece of feedback that we were getting, that I was getting over and over again from city council members and mayors uh, who, uh, and we're getting more and more local elected officials who are supporting the bill. But what I was hearing from people is we like what this bill is doing, but can you give us some latitude to tailor it to our specific needs in our city based on the geography and the layout of Mm -hmm. the city and so on and so forth. And so we want to meet the goals of the bill, but can we have a little flexibility? So that was the genesis of it. And starting last summer, we, you know, I was, uh, I was unsure if we could actually craft this. 
uh, in a way that would work. Uh, but we worked with a number of planning departments in Southern and Northern California, uh, as well as uh, state agencies. And we came up with a, um, w with I think a good approach. Um, it's still a work in progress. It's gonna have to be fine tuned, uh, but it's something that I think can be implemented uh, and that will work where cities will have to zone for as much housing um, as SB 50 would require, but they can move it around a little bit to tailor it to their needs as long as they're not increasing vehicle miles traveled by making it sprawl housing, and as long as they're not violating fair housing by you know, disproportionately putting the new density into low-income neighborhoods. What, what are some of the um, local governments or local officials that now support the bill because of these recent changes? Uh, sure. I, um, and I'm sorry, I don't have a list uh, in yeah, front yeah. of me, sure. but we had a few, we rolled out a few uh, new endorsements uh, from uh, Southern California, um, <clears throat> uh, Culver City, Carson. Um, we also um, have uh, more and more uh, Bay Area um, uh, local elected officials supporting the bill uh, in the East Bay. Uh, and then we have some elected officials uh, in the Bay Area and uh, uh, a few in Southern California who are happy that we're doing this and are looking at it now, and I suspect we'll be endorsing the bill uh, soon. So you're well aware there's an existing state process uh, under state law that um, allows cities or requires cities to zone for a certain amount of uh, new homes uh, over a, a eight-year period. Um, that process is going on right now um, all over the state, but kind of most directly in Southern California. Um, so help me under, help us understand how this is just not duplicative of what that process uh, what that process is. Yeah, it's not duplicative at all. It'll zone for more housing than uh, than what uh, the housing element process would typically zone for. But beyond that. It ensures that the housing that we're zoning for is focused around jobs and transit because the housing element process um, does not, uh, you know, it does not require uh, that. And so the housing element process can still lead to a lot of sprawl housing, uh, which is not uh, what we want. So, um, you know, this is, and again, in terms of how this interplays with RENA or housing element, it's really the same as the previous version of SB 50, all we're saying is instead of us telling you exactly um, how it has to be, you can move it around a little bit. It's still, p cities will still be required to zone for um, at least as much housing as SB 50 would, would upzone them. Uh, and so it really doesn't change the fundamentals of SB 50. It just gives cities ability to say, we're going to go taller here and shorter here. We're going to focus a little bit more in, in these areas, maybe slightly less in these areas. Uh, that's all it does. It doesn't change the fundamentals of SB 50. Um, so try to keep in mind our rule on acronyms, and especially we have <laughs> an actual normal human being that isn't incredibly well-versed in every housing acronym here. So Did, keep, I, say, did keep, I say RENA? You said RENA. Okay. Yeah. Why don't you spell it out real quick? Okay, yeah. the Regional Housing Needs Assessment, it is... Uh, uh, every eight years, uh, mm -hmm. every city and county in the state of California gets some numbers about how many uh, homes they are supposed to uh, 
deliver or uh, be built Planned in their for. jurisdiction yeah. um, in over the next uh, eight years. You make it sound so sexy and unbureaucratic, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> and so, exactly. Uh, that's, that's what I do, you know, I try to boil it down. Um, so that... Uh, I'm a trial lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you're well aware, that RENA process that you just described um, has had a fairly flawed history, right? And we're uh, fixing it. What I'm getting at is some of the basic elements that led um, Liam to ask whether this is duplicative or not um, are in SB 50 now, right? Cities are still going to have to develop. If they choose their own plan, it's going to have to go to HCD, the state housing department, to be approved, right? Um, do you worry that some of the flaws in the RENA process might spill over to SB 50? Why would this work? No, I, I'm not. First of all, um, RENA numbers, these housing goals, were not actually reflective of housing needs. So you had cities that were would brag about how they were meeting their RENA goals, but their RENA goal for an eight-year period was like 80 units of housing. I'm not going to name names. Some cities who I, I like them very much, and they say, we, we've met our housing goals. I'm like, well, your housing goals were like nothing. Uh, and even San Francisco, even though we had larger housing goals, um, our housing goals were way low compared to what we needed. So RENA was not even based on how much housing we actually needed. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, the way it worked is the state would tell each region, and so like the Southern California Association of Governments is 20 million people, here's your aggregate number. You figure out how you sub-allocate it to cities. Allocate uh, number of homes to be built. Right. So, so the, the yeah. region would get X number, yeah. and then you would parcel it out to all the cities. And that became a, a really ugly food fight. And the wealthy, powerful cities um, would you know, get almost nothing. Like Beverly Hills got arena allocation of three or two last time. Um, and so it, it was just a bad news all around. Mm -hmm. And so the legislation that we passed SB 828 um, helps to fix it. There's still more work to do, um, but it requires that those housing numbers actually reflect projected housing need. And it places guardrails around how you allocate it within a region to each city. Uh, and so what we saw is twofold, because the, the Southern California uh, region just went through this. Uh, their housing allocation tripled. Yeah. Uh, and when you look at what cities were getting, you know, now Beverly Hills, instead of three, has 3,000. Um, Santa Monica went from 1,700 to, I believe, 9,600. 91. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, West Hollywood went from, I think, under 100 or about 100 to about 3,000. So it, these are much more realistic goals. And frankly, SB 50 is going to help these cities to uh, zone for those goals. Because having gone through housing element process when I was in local government before, it's not pretty, um, and it becomes a major like fight within the city. Um, and SB 50 will actually make it easier for cities to achieve that new zoning. So elaborate on that. How exactly? Well, so a city can. So if if, if a city chooses, and there will be cities that will be like, fine, let SB 50 kick in in its form. We don't want to uh, present an alternative plan. And so then th that city will be upzoned. There's going to be more density zoning for more housing, and then that will, um, you know, hel help them with their housing element mm -hmm. process. Um, or they can uh, go through the alternative process and craft a plan 
uh, that will then help them in their housing element. So I'm glad we brought this up, um, and you brought up Beverly Hills specifically. Um, 3,200 new units under what is projected to be their ultimate number they're going to have to zone for. That city um, doesn't have a lot of transit there, uh, but there is a you know, job center, so it would qualify under the, the provisions of SB 50 that would have to increase density uh, because they were in, in, uh, uh, in or near job centers. Um, 3,200 units, so that's a lot. I mean, do you think, is there any, any evidence that, or do you know that under SB 50, it actually be having to do any more than that? Or is it simply that, I mean, would SB 50, in, in a sense, have no effect um, in Beverly Hills if, uh, since they have to re- already rezone for 3,200 units? I, under I think that law. if you do an overlay, um, and, and, and remember, SB 50 goes beyond just identifying sites where you're going to build housing, which is what the housing element uh, uh, process is for. Um, it is... Uh, SB 50 is about just all existing parcels. And so it's not, again, it's not just about what's going to happen in the next eight years. Frankly, it's what's going to happen in the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have a parcel that right now has you know, a single family home on it. There's no plan that anyone has to, to change that. And that all of a sudden becomes zoned for, let's say, up 10 units, depending on you know the size of the parcel. Um, and, and that may not, nothing may happen in the next eight years, but in, you know, in 20 years, you know, maybe that will become a 10 year, 10, 10 unit building. So SB 50 isn't um, just about what we're doing immediately right now. It's about long term structural change for how we do land use in the state of California. Um, I want to quickly transition to another portion of the bill that remains intact, which is um, the de facto end of uh, single family only zoning and um, fourplexes across the state. Mm-hmm. That provision um, doesn't allow the demolition of homes um, that can be uh, reconstructed into fourplexes. You can you can only convert a single family home into a duplex, triplex, fourplex. Mm-hmm. Why is that provision in there, and do you think it will hamper the ability to um, expand housing? Well, if we hadn't put that in there, you would be asking me, "Hey, isn't this going to result in the mowing down of entire single family home?" Neighborhoods, so it's and I, I say that not to be snarky or anything, because that's your job to you know, ask those, uh, push me on those questions. But um, it, it, it's it's a balance, right? So we like, for example, on the multi on the other part of the bill where we uh, have strict demolition uh, prohibitions if a renter has lived in the building in the last seven years, or if there's been an Ellis Act eviction in the last 15 years. And we put those in there because we don't want this bill to become an engine for evicting, clearing out buildings to tear them down to build bigger buildings. We want to protect renters where they are. And some have said, well, you could build a lot more housing if you didn't have those demolition restrictions in. Or if you said it only has to be vacant for you know six months or a year. And, and that is true. But we're striking a balance because we don't want to be you know, getting rid of tenants and evicting people and causing that kind of dislocation. Um, with the single-family homes, uh, one of the, you know, we, we're, not, we're, we're not doing this so that we can have someone, like, buy up all the homes in a neighborhood and just bulldoze everything to build fourplexes. Um, p- people can love that or hate that, 
but we're we're trying to strike a balance. And so, um, if it's a vacant lot, and there are plenty of vacant lots in California to build housing, you can just straight up just build a fourplex. I, I will also just add, you know, we did through our, the ADU legislation last year. Um, we went to quasi triplex mm-hmm. uh, because you can do an ADU and a junior ADU. Now there are limits on ADUs in terms right. of sizes, so right. it's not exactly duplex triplex, but it's it's most of the way there. So the fourplex provision um, is uh, is still, I think, impactful and relevant. It's a little, it's less dramatic now that we have the ADU junior ADU requirement. Yeah, yeah. Kind of yeah. I, I was yeah. going to say accessory uh, dwelling unit. Yeah. <laughs> Jacob is already looking bored. Um, yeah. Yes, granny flat. I know. I know. And I, I know. I said what a couple of years ago that casita is not a thing. And, yeah, that and was then, it caused yeah. tension between us. I know. It's yeah, a, yeah. Although it improved our relationship. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me ask this. You know, you, you referenced some of the the reasons for um, uh, not allowing demolition to single family homes. Is concerns about. Um, uh, displacing existing renters or existing folks from living in, in, in the communities that they're in. Um, there's a, still a lot of pushback, though, from uh, groups who believe that the bill um, not only does not go far enough to um, uh, prevent against that, but in some ways could exacerbate that. And I know you've been av- uh, negotiating for a long time with a group of equity advocates, 18 months uh, or so. Um, I spoke with one of them uh, one of the members of the coalition earlier this week, uh, Laura Raymond from Act LA, um, who told me that, you know, in our view, this is a quote, the bill doesn't really come close uh, to adequate affordability. Uh, you know, 18 months is a long time to, to be talking. You know, why don't you think you've you've been able to to reach a deal that um, that addresses some of their concerns? Um, well, to be clear, we haven't already we already have agreement with them on some of their concerns. So yeah. when we, after SBA 27 uh, failed, I went down to LA <clears throat> with uh, with my uh, uh, staffer, Annie Fryman, and we met with um, uh, ACT LA and, and a bunch of LA groups. Yeah. Uh, and they laid out four um, four things that they wanted to see change in the bill. It was a really good meeting. They were very clear they wanted to work with us. Um, they were not categorically opposed. They wanted to, and, uh, and the four changes they wanted, they wanted uh, tenant anti-demolition tenant protections, and that and we negotiated the seven years yeah. and fifteen years if there was an Ellis Act eviction, we and and we put that that went into the bill a year ago when yeah. we introduced it, and it's never changed, and they've never come to us and said please change it. Um, we need to adopt a rent registry to make it as effective as possible, and I'm hoping that Buffy Wicks is able to get that done, and she has my full support. Um, uh, so that was one. Number two was they said if you only limit it to transit, then that disproportionately covers lower income urban areas uh, because wealthier areas have often kept transit out. So can you please uh, extend it to wealthier areas? And that, that is the high opportunity or right. job rich classification that we put into the bill. So two of the four things that they asked for, we put in. They've never questioned it or, you know, we, we seem to have uh, agreement on those two. The other two were the delayed implementation for sensitive communities and inclusionary. Um, we had inclusionary in the bill, and we have it, but we're- So, so a set-aside for low-income housing yes. uh, in the project. Sorry, inclusionary yeah. is jargon. Yeah. Yes, for uh-huh. a required percentage yeah. for low-income uh, affordable housing and development. Um, so, and we have been working with them. It, yes, it has been slow, and it's, you know, we have coalitions on both sides. There's a lot of people involved, and, and it has been uh, slower. I was hoping that we would have it done by now. I actually think we're close. I, I, um, 
uh, we have made huge progress in terms of being closer on the um, affordability uh, requirements. Earlier, last year, last spring, I was not optimistic at all. I was quite pessimistic. Um, but I give this coalition, this equity coalition, enormous credit for really thoughtfully engaging with us and the back and forth we've had and actually listening uh, to each other. And so I, um, again, I can never guarantee that any negotiation is going to be successful, but I believe on the inclusionary, I think we are extremely close. And I, I and the most recent um, uh, proposal that they made mm -hmm. uh, was actually quite reasonable. Uh, and so I'm hoping that we're going to be able to land that playing on that issue soon. Mm -hmm. um, stay tuned. So yeah. is, is and, then, and then on sensitive communities, this is about communities that are disproportionately low income, uh, have high risk of displacement, have a history of just being treated horribly uh, by housing policy. Um, and uh, the idea was uh, we have in the bill um, a five-year delayed implementation to provide um, uh, space to do local anti-displacement planning and then to have some flexibility coming out of that five-year period. Uh, and we, um, uh, we, we seem to be very close. It, it's, we're not as close as I thought we were, um, but, but that is, you know, again, it's a tough issue and it's complicated, but I am optimistic that we will get there. And, and if we are able to get this out of the Senate, um, we'll have four months until our first uh, assembly committee hearing. And so I think we have enough time and space to be able to uh, resolve it with the, the equity coalition. So right now, the bill would require um, projects that invoke SB 50 to include between 15 and 25 percent of their units as low-income housing reserved for people uh, making a certain percentage below median income. That 25 percent figure is really for you know pretty big projects, I would argue. Um, what's the problem with going higher? Why not have a higher percentage? Well, um, people don't live in percentages. Uh, people live. I do. And, um, that's <laughs> yeah. good. I, 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 we need to grab a drink and talk about that, how, how that is for your life. But it's um, yeah. Well, I know what the percentage median income I am. So, yeah. but people, but people don't live in percentages. They live in number of units, and so you can, you know, I think sometimes, and I've gone through the inclusionary wars in San Francisco, and I think sometimes people get very caught up in what is the percentage. And it is a, it, like we love, you know, 50%, 40%, 25%. It's a beautiful percentage, and that's what I think the percentage should be. What we should be focused on, what is going to produce the maximum number of units and especially of below market rate units? Because you can have a really awesome inclusion or let's say 40%. Because we, we, it's so important, we're going to do 40%. Well, 40 if that makes the project financially infeasible, 40% of zero is zero, and that means you get no uh, inclusionary or below market rate units. And so my approach to inclusionary, and I support inclusionary housing, I always have, is I want it to be as high as it can be without harming the project and killing the project. So you had an interesting uh, event this week in Oakland uh, on Tuesday unveiling changes to the to the bill. Um it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was going to say interesting is charitable. I, I like I like the word interesting because it mean, can mean so many things, you know. Um, so there was a, a group there, uh, a group uh, Moms for Housing, um, and, so you, and other groups, it and was other several groups. groups. Yes, um, but uh, you know, I imagine when you 
um, plan the event. You didn't expect this to be sort of the first line of a of a newspaper story on uh, on on the event. This is from the Mercury News story. Um, Protesters shouted down Senator Scott Weiner on Tuesday as he stood on the steps of Oakland City Hall, attempting to introduce a revamped bill to spur more housing development through California. Um, what, what what do you make of the the opposition yeah. that was at your yeah. your event? They, they didn't just shout me down; they shouted every speaker down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so a couple of things. First of yeah. all, I, I so um, I I'm from San Francisco. Uh, we we know protesting. We do yeah. it really well. Yeah. We do it uh, often. Uh, and I have been in many of those protests over the years. I have at times been the subject of protests on the Board of Supervisors or in the Senate. Uh, and protesting is part of our democracy. And so I have no problem uh, with the fact that people were protesting uh, our rollout. Um, and in fact, uh, we, we knew about it ahead of time. And so before the press conference started, I went up to the Moms, uh, uh, the moms for Housing um, uh, folks, and I uh, introduced myself, and I thanked them for being there, and I told them, you know, genuinely that I support them. I support what they're doing, and I, um, and they asked if we could meet, and I said, absolutely, I would love to meet. Um, so I, I had no problem with protesters. I know that this bill, and not just it's not just about this bill, right, because there have been, you know, they have, a, with Mayor Schaff, there's a lot of tension there and it's just this issue is so important to all of us and it, and especially for people who are housing insecure or homeless it you know impacts people in a just uh, sometimes in a really horrific way sure um, and so um, I had no problem with them uh, protesting what I did have a problem with is apparently the um, the sound person at Oakland City Hall got food poisoning the night before and was sick, and he's the only person who can set up the sound system. And so we had no sound system. And so, yes, the pro- the, to be clear, the protesters were there. Our supporters were, we had 10 times as many supporters as uh-huh. protesters. Uh-huh. And we, but, but on the stage, even though the TV feed could hear us, we didn't really have a sound system for the crowd. So it, it, it you know, yes, the protesters were very robust and loud, and they, as a democracy, they have every right to do that. You know, I do think that some of the things that are that they said about the bill, I don't <clears throat> agree with. The fact that this, you know, saying that this bill is not about affordable housing. This bill is about both market rate and affordable housing. Um, the fact that the Nonprofit Housing Association of Northern California is sponsoring the bill. This is a group whose only job is to facilitate the construction of low-income housing, they are sponsoring the bill. We have bridge housing and mission housing and other nonprofit affordable housing groups whose only job is to build low-income housing supporting the bill. And the reason is, uh, and I think sometimes people don't focus on this, overwhelmingly the impact of this bill is going to be to take parcels of land where it is only legal now to build a single family home or maybe a duplex and to allow multi-unit there and when you have land zoned for single family only that means it is a ban on affordable housing you cannot build affordable housing in a majority large majority of the land in california because affordable housing doesn't pencil out as a single family home you have to have multi-unit and so we are taking land, not just in Oakland or San Francisco or L.A., but in all of these wealthy suburbs. And we are saying you can now build apartment buildings there. You can build affordable housing there, whereas right now you cannot do that. And that's why these nonprofit affordable housing developers know that this is going to open up an enormous amount of land to them that is currently off limits. And that's why the San Francisco Planning Department 
did an analysis of SP50 for San Francisco and concluded that SP50, both because it'll trigger more affordability requirements and because it'll open up this land for affordable housing, they concluded that SP50 will lead to a significant increase in below market rate, low income affordable housing in San Francisco. And I think the same will be true in other cities uh, as well. Why do you think um, that argument has not resonated yet? Like, why do you think uh, Moms for Housing was there protesting? It's been three years, basically, of- um, Two years. Yeah, sorry. It's this been- Entering the third year. Entering the third year, um, where you've been trying to make this argument, but it doesn't seem to be landing in some quarter. So well, why why is that? It's landed in a lot of quarters since a, since three different statewide polls poll this bill in the 60s, and it polls well in every single region. So why do you think it didn't land with Moms for Housing? Yeah, I, I think that there are- um, I, I, I don't- it's not just moms for housing. I think there's a certain political perspective on housing. Um, there, there are some people who do not believe in building market rate housing, that they believe that the only housing that should be built is subsidized, whether, whether you call it public housing or um, subsidized below market rate housing for, for low-income people, and that's the only housing that should be built. Uh, and I, I, even though I strongly support building a lot of that kind of housing because low-income people are in desperate need of subsidized housing. Um, I don't agree that that's the only housing we should be building because if, if, if we say we're not going to build any market rate housing, only subsidized housing, that is a guarantee that we will perpetuate and worsen our housing shortage uh, because we don't have the resources to build millions of homes. And it basically tells the middle class to go scratch because we're not going to subsidize our, our way out of our middle class housing problem. We need to focus our subsidies on low income people. And for the middle class, it's about just expanding the supply. So that's why for me, it's an all of the above approach. And the legislation I've authored over the years has helped affordable housing and SB 50 will as well. Um, but they're entitled to their opinion. I respect their right to have that opinion. I just don't I, I partially agree, but I don't fully agree because I think you, you have to have an all of the above approach. So I want to pivot briefly to some of the politics before we end here. Um, and I spoke to Senator Portentino, um, uh, you know, uh, in advance of the amendments being being put forward. Um, and then afterwards, he, he issued another statement, not a fan um, still. Um, obviously, there's an issue of trying to get the bill out of out of his committee. Um, what makes you think you're going to be able to, to do that, given that it doesn't seem like he's any friendlier to the bill than he was last year? Yeah. I mean, um, uh, Senator Portentino, he's my colleague. He's my friend. We actually, despite, you know, some of the drama that gets out there in the, in the Twitterverse, um, he and I are, uh, actually have a great relationship and we agree on the vast majority of things. But we do have a disagreement uh, here, and I, I respect his uh, opinion, even though I disagree with him. Um, so I, you know, I, um, I don't run the Senate. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, a, a strong supporter of the person who does lead the Senate, Senator Tony Atkins, uh, and I was an early supporter of her uh, bid to become pro tem, and I, I think I made the right choice. She's done a great job. Uh, she has made a number of public statements uh, about what she wants uh, to see happen with the bill, and I don't want to speak for her. Uh, but ultimately, she is a leader, um, and she, you know, makes uh, you know a number of decisions about whether bills move or don't move. Um, she, you know, often defers to her chairs. She's a very collaborative leader. She's not 
heavy-handed. Uh, but, you know, there are times when she makes decisions as leader, and she's done that with other bills. And uh, and so, again, she's made statements about what she wants to happen with this bill, um, that, uh, you know, about it having a, uh, a vote. Uh-huh. Um, and I will defer to those statements. I don't want to speak for her. But the bill certainly can uh, make it to the floor. Um, we very much want it to make it to the floor. Uh, and I am um, uh, on the floor. I'm cautiously optimistic about our votes. There's a lot of support. There was a lot of support last May. There's more support now. I have members who were maybe on the fence last May who have told me that they're in favor uh, of the bill uh, now. Can this bill pass without the explicit support of Governor Gavin Newsom? Um, I, I believe so, yeah. I mean, to be clear, I am. I want the governor's support. Um, I think the governor. This is you know the, the governor is a uh, strong voice for housing. I'm you know I love Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown was just such an amazing governor. Um, he housing was not one of his highest priorities. It's not a criticism. Governors have to pick their battles. Uh, but this governor has made clear that housing and homelessness are are just you know, as they should be, right at the top of the agenda. Uh, and so we're working with the governor. Um, I am, you know, making the case for why he should support this. But governors usually don't support bills in the first house. They do sometimes, but usually it's later in the process. Uh, and so it's not surprising. That's why I, I did not agree with the criticism of the governor last May that he, you know, he made a statement afterwards. He should have gotten involved before. I, I don't agree with that. This was about, you know, our internal operations uh, in the Senate. So I, 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 don't, I, I don't think we have to have the governor's support, but it certainly would help. Uh, thank you so much, Senator Weiner, for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Give Me Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. This is Matt Levin, dad and housing reporter with CalMatters. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. Uh, Liam Dillon, and I am in fact with the Los Angeles Times, and my Twitter handle is at DillonLiam. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in another two weeks.